Well, back in the mid-1990s when I was in Bible college, uh, I had the pleasure and, and privilege of being a ministry intern at a church in Anaheim. I served as an intern for a year at Knott Avenue Christian Church, and I served under the evangelism pastor. It was a great area to do ministry. It was located about a mile from Knott's Berry Farm. And one of my duties as part of that internship was to go out each week into the community and knock on doors of people who had visited the church the prior Sunday. And so when I first started doing this, it scared me half to death. I would almost pray that the people wouldn't be home. I was that scared of knocking on doors of people I'd never met. But over the course of the year, God gave me a little bit more boldness. And it was really a blessing over that year to knock on dozens and dozens of doors in and around Anaheim and to be able to lead several people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When I began serving as the pastor here at Impact Christian Church back in 1999, I continued that practice. Those first few years especially, I knocked on dozens and dozens of doors in Victorville, Atlanta, Apple Valley, and Asperia. And I would guess that over the last, oh, 28 years or so, I've probably knocked on hundreds, if not several thousand doors uh, in Southern California in one city or another. And as I think about that, I want to share something with you that is is based on my experience. And I would imagine some of you have perhaps had the same experience. I've found that more times than not, when I've knocked on the door of someone in a lower income community, they have tended to be more receptive to opening the door and hearing me share the good news of Jesus Christ with them than your average member of a upper middle class or upper class community. I've found that more times than not, when knocking on the door of someone in an upper middle class community, the door never opens, and if it does open, the ears are closed to what I have to share about Jesus Christ. I think that's a shame. More times than not, adults who are highly educated, wealthy, and successful don't want to budge. They like where they are, so they have no motivation to change, even when they hear the good news of Jesus Christ loud and clear. So the bottom line is, when it comes to sharing the gospel, wealthy intellectuals tend to be a tough crowd. This was especially true in Paul's day in the city of Athens, Greece. When we left off last Sunday, Paul had just finished his ministry in the Greek city of Berea. According to Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Berean Jews were receptive and open-minded to Paul's teaching. They were eager and enthusiastic learners, but they, they didn't take his teaching at face value. They searched the scriptures every day to verify that Paul was teaching them the untainted, unadulterated word of God. And as we saw last week, God calls us to follow in the Bereans' footsteps. God calls you and me to be Bereans. 
Well, even though the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Thessalonian Jews, Paul still faced opposition in that city. After a while, some riffraff came down from Thessalonica uh, from, uh, to the, the town of Berea, and they agitated the crowds there in Berea. Evidently, Paul's life was in danger because according to verses 14 and 15 here in Acts 17, some of the Christian men wasted no time escorting Paul about 150 miles from Thessalonica, excuse me, from Berea to Athens, about a 150 mile journey. And so evidently those Thessalonian Jews, when they came down to Berea, they stirred up quite a ruckus because those Christian brothers of Paul felt it necessary to get him out of town ASAP. And that's where we pick up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Hopefully you're there in in your Bibles. Uh, Don't just take my word for it. See it there for yourselves. Acts chapter 19, excuse me, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. May God bless us as we study his word today. We'll stop there and pick up in verse 19 a little bit later. If you were to visit the city of Athens today, this is what you would see from the outskirts of the city. You would still see the remnant of a city that was pretty amazing. Even if you know nothing about Greek history, if you were to go to Athens and look at what remains of Athens from yesteryear, you would probably come to the conclusion that Athens was an amazing, amazing city in its day. And you'd be correct. It was a pretty amazing city. In Paul's day, Athens was one of the most important cities in Greece. It had a very rich history of being the intellectual center of the world. 450 years before Paul came to the city, Athens was the hometown of the great Greek philosophers Socrates and Plato. And a century after that, it became the adopted hometown of the great philosophers Aristotle and Epicurus. For centuries, Athens was the place where the brainiacs of the world gathered to discuss and debate the latest and greatest philosophies. Athens was actually the birthplace of democracy. We're thankful for that here in America. As far as buildings and architecture go, uh, Athens uh, really was second to none. It would have been difficult to find a city with more impressive looking architecture and artwork than Athens. I like how Chuck Swindoll describes it. He writes, Athens was a city unsurpassed in sculpture and architecture. It boasted a 60,000 seat stadium. Art galleries existed in rare abundance. Lavishly decorated music halls and respected academies. Well, I pronounce that in an interesting way. Respected academies lined the stone-laid streets. 
In many ways, it stood out as the cultural centerpiece of the entire Greek world. It's pretty well said. The most impressive part of the city was the Acropolis. It was a walled section of the city perched high above the rest of the city, perched on a hilltop. And it overlooked the streets below. Here's a nice view of what it might have looked like in Paul's day. The centerpiece of the Acropolis was the Parthenon, the temple of the chief goddess of Athens. Her name was Athena, from which Athens got its name. And so that temple to Athena there in the Parthenon was where thousands of people would flock uh, every single day there in Athens. And outside the temple stood a gigantic gold and ivory statue to Athena. It towered over the buildings there on the Acropolis. And so it could be seen from the town below for miles and miles. It was that centerpiece, that focal point of that Acropolis up there on that hilltop. Sadly, the huge statue to the false goddess Athena was just the tip of the idolatry iceberg there in Athens. Athens was riddled with tens of thousands of idols. The Roman historian Pliny, a first century Roman historian, wrote, In the time of Nero, there in the late first century, just a little bit after Paul uh, was there in Athens, he writes, Athens had well over 25,000 public statues and another 30,000 in the Parthenon alone. That's pretty impressive. It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the cities of Greece combined, which led the Roman author Petronius to write these words. In Athens, it is easier to find a god than a man. <laughs> That's what he said when he visited Athens. Well, this was the city that the Apostle Paul came to here in Acts 17. And this time he was all alone. Silas and Timothy were still back in Berea doing ministry. We're not sure where Luke was at the time. He might have still been back in Philippi. But Paul was all alone, at least for the first few weeks. In verse 15, Paul sends his escorts back to Berea with the message for Silas and Timothy. Join me in Athens as soon as possible. Since that required a 300-mile round trip, Paul knew that he'd be in Athens by himself for at least two weeks, most likely longer. So what was Paul going to do during these two weeks? Maybe get a little R&R, &R, uh, maybe check out the sites since Athens had such impressive architecture and artwork. Maybe he'd go down to the bay since Athens was a beachside town. Maybe he'd go down to the bay and get in a little fishing. You know, what was he going to do with this time? Well... Paul would have nothing to do with getting some R&R. &R. It was not a, a time for vacation in his mind. God had given him a mission to reach Greece with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether his teammates were with him or not, he was going to reach Greece for Jesus Christ. And he was in Athens, so he was going to reach as many Athenians as he could with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had important work to do. Take another look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy there in Athens, it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
Listen to how a few other translations put it. Uh, The New Living Translation says it this way. Paul was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. I like how the Amplified Version puts it. His spirit was greatly angered when he saw that the city was full of idols. And finally, the New King James Version says it this way. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Bible scholar John Wade, I think, says it really well. He writes, after all he had been through during the past several weeks, few people would have faulted Paul if he had relaxed and taken a few days vacation in Athens. But Paul's spirit was too tormented to enjoy the beautiful city about him. Others might see beautiful statues and breathtaking temples, but Paul saw men lost in darkness and damned. Such a situation would not allow Paul to rest. Here in verse 16, we get a a beautiful glimpse of Paul's heart. His heart broke for those around him who were looking for God in all the wrong places, who were being held captive by shallow and deceptive philosophy that only leads to disappointment and to death. I love how Chuck Swindoll puts it. He writes, the tragedy is this. Earthly gods are never satisfied, filled with superstition and blinded by fear and ignorance. Idol worshipers live their lives wondering if they've satisfied all the demands, if they've won the favor of the right gods. It's so heartbreaking that you churn within. That was Paul in Athens. The city was a junkyard of idols. Isn't that well said? The city of Athens was a junkyard of idols, and it broke Paul's heart. It broke his heart to see thousands of people around him oblivious to the fact that they were chasing after junk that could never bring them true peace, junk that could never give their lives meaning, junk that could never set them free from their sin that would send them to hell. Can we relate with that? We are surrounded by people, aren't we, in our culture? who chase after junk that we know in our heart of hearts will never satisfy them. Hmm. Well, according to verse 17, Paul didn't just sit on his hands and sulk, nor did he throw up his hands in anger and start cussing at all the idol worshipers in town. Notice in verse 17 that Paul's reaction to the city's idolatry wasn't just negative, It's true, it was negative in the sense that it broke his heart, but his reaction was also positive and constructive. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. In other words, both in the synagogue and in the town square, Paul told everyone who would listen the good news about Jesus Christ. He spoke to God-fearing, Bible-believing Jews. He spoke to idol-worshipping pagans. He spoke to anyone who would listen. Some people were receptive to his message. Many others weren't. But Paul was undeterred. When someone denied him a listening ear, he just went on and told the next person that came around. He was undeterred in preaching the gospel. He kept preaching. He kept teaching. He kept striking up conversations and it eventually paid off. 
In verse 18, we read a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. This word babbler is an interesting word in the original Greek language. It's in verse 18, this word babbler. It's literally translated as seed picker. (laughs) Seed picker. It was originally coined, speaking of birds that hang out outside the markets and just kind of pick at the crumbs on the sidewalk or in the gutter. Right? And so kind of be thinking of that pigeon you might see outside of McDonald's who's pecking, pecking at those French fries that someone dropped on the way to their car. And so that was a seed pecker. That's what they're calling Paul here. So in case it's not crystal clear, let me just, just tell you outright, they weren't complimenting him. <laughs> this was no compliment to be called a seed pecker. There's no compliment to be called a babbler. Basically, they use this term at times uh, to identify someone who cherry picked the best parts of different existing philosophies, thrust them all together and tried to present it as something new and great. So some of these critics were saying, that's what this guy's doing, man. He's just cherry picking from all these existing philosophies, throwing it all together into uh, some sort of mismatch and saying it's something brand new and better than what we have. And so some people were saying, ah, this guy's full of it. He's got nothing to say. But others were fascinated by what Paul was saying. Two different groups are identified here, the Epicureans and the Stoics. So what did these guys believe? Well, let me give you just a quick summary for the sake of time. We won't spend much time on this. Here's just a quick summary. The Epicureans, their philosophy was totally materialistic. They didn't believe in the soul or the spirit. And they didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed once you died, you disappeared into oblivion. So Epicureans adopted the motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) So Epicureanism, over time, became hedonism. You just do whatever the heck you want to do and let that body run rampant because tomorrow we die and we have no more fun after that. So that's what Epicureanism became. Now, how about Stoicism? The Stoics philosophy was quite a bit different. It was pantheistic. In other words, they believed God was in everything. So unlike the Epicureans that believed in no spirit, the Stoics believed that God, the spirit, was everywhere and inhabited everything. And so when a person dies... The Stoics believed that person's spirit is absorbed into nature. And as a result, they believed it was important to live in harmony with nature and not to chase after pleasure. So hence, when we say someone's Stoic, oftentimes they're kind of stone-faced, may not show much emotion, may not show much excitement, and they don't chase after pleasure. It's just highly rational and focused on the here and now And no pleasure, no pleasure seeking. So the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens, they disagreed about many things. But here they agree on one thing. What Paul was teaching, they agreed it was different than anything they had ever heard. They decided to give Paul an opportunity to to share his newfangled philosophy with the best and the brightest philosophers in all of Athens. 
an esteemed group known as the Areopagus Council. Just sounds kind of high and lofty, doesn't it? The Areopagus Council. And we begin reading about them in verse 19. So let's pick up in verse 19 of Acts chapter 17. It says, Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, What you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The God of the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, the Areopagus council was like the Supreme Court of Athens. In Paul's day, they didn't have as much authority as they had had a few centuries earlier, but it was still a very esteemed and important uh, group there in Athens. In Paul's day, the Areopagus was still in charge of handing down verdicts in cases related to homicide. They also had to weigh in when it came to all religious matters. They were the executive branch, or I should say the judicial branch, when it came to questions uh, related to religion. Uh, This Areopagus Council met in a building that was located on Mars Hill. It was a smaller hill to the northwest of that large hill we talked about a few minutes ago, the Acropolis that had that huge uh, statue to Diana located on it. And so there on Mars Hill, uh, there at that meeting place of the Areopagus, Paul was brought and given the opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. 
It was a marvelous opportunity. It would be like you or me being given the opportunity to share Christ in the halls of Congress or to go before the esteemed Supreme Court of the United States and share the good news of Jesus. So this must have been a little bit intimidating, this group, because these guys had IQs that were off the charts. These were the smartest of the smart guys in all of Athens. But Paul jumped at the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Paul begins in verse 22 with a compliment. Even though all the idolatry grieved Paul's heart, he didn't stand up and say, "Uh, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very stupid. No, that's not what he said. "Uh, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very wicked. No, notice what he says there. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He compliments them. You're very religious. Say it another way. Paul began on common ground. He was very religious in the sense of worshiping Jesus Christ. And so he begins on common ground with them. In verse 23, Paul further endears himself to his listeners by pointing out how he had taken time to to walk around and carefully examine the Athenians' objects of worship. He points out that he had discovered one of their religious altars that contained this inscription, to an unknown God. And when Paul looked at that, wow, these people have tens of thousands of idols. How could they have possibly missed one? But they thought at some point in their history, in case we missed one, we better make an altar to an unknown God. So if there's a God out there we've never heard of, we don't get him upset. We better worship him, too. And so Paul takes this opportunity and says, the God you worship is unknown. I want to make known to you. I want to reveal him to you. We see that in verse 23. What you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you right now. Now, the heart of Paul's sermon is contained in verses 24 through 31. And for the sake of time, I just want to quickly summarize the six points to Paul's sermon in verses 24 through 31. Point number one, God is not the maid, but is the maker. He points that out in verses 24 through 25. God is not the maid. He is the maker. We can see that in those two verses They're beginning in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Then in verse 26, he points out point two. God has guided history. I love this verse. I've referred to this many times sharing Christ with people over the years. In verse 26, he says, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Isn't that great? God has established the nations where they will exist and what time frame they will exist. And I believe you could take that even a step further. I believe God hand shows you to live at this time and to be in this place. What about point number three? In verses 27 and 28, Paul says, God has made us to seek and find him. Notice that starting in verse 27, Paul says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Uh, uh, Step number four, point number four in this sermon. The days of ignorance are over. It's time to wake up and repent. We see that in verses 29 and 30. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And finally, points five and six, we find both of them in verse 31. The day of judgment is coming and Jesus's resurrection proves it. Look again at at verse 31 with me. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. This is a beautiful, intelligent sermon. By the way, this is the first sermon of Paul's that's recorded in the book of Acts. And so for one reason or another, Luke, the writer of Acts, has waited until now to share from start to finish one of Paul's sermons. And this is such a good one. This sermon is intelligent. Uh, it, It makes sense. It progresses smoothly and logically. It begins on common ground with his brainiac audience. And Paul paints a clear picture for them of who God is who Jesus is, and why they need to turn from their ignorance and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Paul was able to get through most of his message, but the hecklers in the crowd started doing their heckling in verse 32. And what were the results? Well, as they started heckling, it kind of brought Paul's sermon to an abrupt ending. But according to what we read in these last few verses, we see that there were some converts A number of men and women accepted Jesus Christ, including an Areopagus member named Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. Overall, it doesn't appear that as many people accepted Christ in Athens as Paul had hoped. But nonetheless, a group of people did accept Jesus Christ. Winning intellectuals to Christ has never been easy. Even the great Apostle Paul had a tough time leading intellectual uh, brainiacs to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he held on to that hope that many more would. And he was thrilled that a number of them had made that decision when they saw the light to walk in the light. Well, I want to share with you four tips for sharing Christ with brainiacs. Now, God has called you to share Jesus Christ with young and old, male, female, those that are completely outside the church and those who come to church but have never accepted him. God has called you to share Christ with all different types of people. So God at times will call you to share Christ with those that may not be the sharpest knives in the drawer. You know what I mean. Those that may not be the high intellectuals. But make no mistake about it, at times God will call you and me to share Christ with those who, when they walk into a room, they're the smartest person in the room. You know those type of people, don't you? Those who have IQs off the charts. Those that have done more schooling than you could ever imagine doing. Ones whose degrees blow any of my degrees out of the water. God will at times call you to share Christ with brainiacs. And I don't use that term as a critical term. Some people are just blessed with a very big and robust brain. 
and they need Christ just as much as the next guy. So here are four tips for sharing Christ with intellectuals. Tip number one, do your homework ahead of time. Familiarize yourself with their home turf. That's what Paul did here in Athens. I think one of the most annoying things about Jehovah's Witnesses when they knock on my door. uh, Well, actually, now I have a (laughs) gate going across my driveway, so it doesn't happen as much as it used to. But back when I lived in Victorville, I had knocks on my door quite often from either Mormon or Jehovah's Witness uh, missionaries. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses, what really bugged me about them was they didn't listen. They came clearly with their agenda to tell me what they had in mind to tell me, regardless of my situation and regardless of what I said to them. Uh, They were like robots just repeating what they had been programmed to say. They just didn't listen. And maybe you've had that same experience. Sometimes people that want to point you toward their faith, they just don't listen. But I want you to remember that old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's a good nugget of wisdom to keep in mind. Before you tell people about Jesus, let them first see Jesus in you. Let them see that you care about them as a person. Let them see that you care about what's important to you. Uh, Let me say that differently. That you care about what's important to them. And, and, And so don't tell them first what you care about. First listen to what they care about. And from that point, take them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tip number two, when you start talking, begin with a compliment on common ground. Don't miss this wonderful step that that Paul carried out when he spoke to the Athenians there at the Areopagus Council. He began with a compliment on common ground. I've never been a, a big fan of the Christians who hold up those picket signs at stadium events or at political rallies, signs that read something like this, turn or burn, repent or you're going to hell. God hates sinners. I've never been a big fan of those billboards. How many people you know, drop to their knees and say, I need to accept Jesus Christ now because someone insulted them? On a billboard. I've never heard of anyone. Have you? We've got to ask ourselves, was that billboard approach of just cutting to the chase and telling someone they're going to burn in hell? Is that the approach Jesus used with people who never went to church? Is that the approach that Jesus used for pagans and those that weren't Jewish? Is that the approach that Paul or Peter or even John used when they were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gentiles? No, it wasn't. The old saying is true. You attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So be kind to those around you who need Christ and speak kind words, especially at the beginning of your conversation. Step number three, tip number three, no matter where your conversation begins, direct the conversation clearly and convincingly to Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? No matter where that conversation begins, maybe you're talking about the Dodgers, maybe you're talking about the weather, maybe you're talking about Grandma Sally having cancer. Wherever it begins, lead that conversation to Jesus Christ. A few months ago, one of our church members paid me one of the the biggest compliments I've received in a long time. He said, you know what, Dane, I've noticed that your sermons always end with Jesus. And you know what? That just made my heart kind of leap. 
That's one of the greatest compliments anyone could ever pay me as a pastor. Dana, it doesn't matter if you're preaching in Revelation or Jonah or the book of Acts. It doesn't matter if you're preaching about marriage or about anxiety and depression or preaching about encouragement. Your messages always lead us to Jesus. That's one of the greatest compliments anyone could ever give me. And isn't that something that should be said about our conversations when we're sharing the good news with someone? No matter where that conversation begins, we're always leading them clearly and convincingly to Jesus. We don't want people to focus on how great we are. We want them to focus on how great Jesus is. We don't want people remembering us. We want them remembering him. We don't want people walking around uh, after our conversation is over asking, uh, what must I do to be as cool as that guy? What must I do to be as self-confident and and bold as, as that lady? We want them saying, what must I do to be saved? Point them to Jesus Christ clearly and convincingly. And finally, tip number four that we can pull from Paul's example here in Acts 17. Always surrender the results to God. This is so important. Always surrender the results to God. Please never forget this. It's not your job to open a closed mind. It's not your job to soften a hard heart. That's God's job. You can't save a single lost soul. Only God can save lost souls. Your job is to speak the truth about Jesus Christ in love and give people an opportunity to respond to that truth. You pray and wait. You wait and pray. And you make yourself available to walk someone through their confession of faith and baptism when they're ready. In the meantime, you repeat those same four steps with others. Others need to hear that they were created by God and placed by him right here at this time and place. Others need to hear that ignorance is no longer an excuse. Others need to hear that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so they could be forgiven and enjoy eternal life. Others need to hear that one day Jesus Christ will judge us for the lives we lived here on earth. All of you have heard of the famous baseball player Babe Ruth. But my guess is you've never heard of another babe who was a contemporary of Babe Ruth. His name was Babe Pinelli. Babe Pinelli was an empire in Major League Baseball for about 20 years, beginning in the year 1935. And during his rookie year as an umpire, Babe Pinelli was behind home plate in a game where the great Bambino himself, Babe Ruth, was up to bat. Well, there were two strikes against Babe Ruth, and the final pitch was coming. The pitcher released it, and a split second later, it was in the catcher's glove. Babe Ruth didn't swing at it because it was obvious to him that was no strike. But he is shocked when Babe Pinelli from behind the plate says, Strike three! You're out! All of a sudden... The fans and the bleachers erupted in boo, boo, booing the umpire Babe Pinelli. Babe Ruth was so upset, he turned to the umpire Babe Pinelli and said, There's 40,000 people in this park who know that last pitch was a ball, tomato head. Well, some umpires would have tossed him out of the game, but Babe Pinelli calmly responded, Maybe so, Babe. But mine is the only opinion that counts. 
Think about that. Most people do not believe the truth that ultimately in eternity, only one opinion counts. And that's the opinion of Jesus Christ. He's the only one we'll stand before on Judgment Day. And as you share this truth with those around you, like Paul, you will find at times that they reject that truth. No matter. You share that truth with others. Because there are others who will accept that truth. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who will judge the living and the dead. And one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you as the author and finisher of our faith. And we thank you for Paul's marvelous example there in the city of Athens of spreading your good news with those, Lord, whose IQs might have been higher than his own. But no matter He had the truth of Jesus Christ they needed to hear. And he boldly and convincingly shared it. And he left the results up to you. I pray that we would do the same. That we would boldly and convincingly speak the truth. And not beat ourselves up because a hard heart is not softened. Or a closed mind is not opened. Or a soul is not saved. We put that in your capable hands. We share the good news clearly. And we pray that those hearts eventually would be softened and those minds would eventually be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Oh God, do your work. And I pray that we would be faithful in doing ours. And together, I pray, oh God, that we would see many people saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I don't want this service to end without you having an opportunity to make that decision. If you know that you cannot save yourself from your sins, if you know that your sins have distanced you from the God that created you, if you know that you can't make it to heaven on your own, you need the grace of God, I want to encourage you to remember and carry out these ABCs. A, you need to admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior. B, you need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he is your only hope to be forgiven and to make it to heaven someday. And C, you need to choose to accept him today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, so don't drag your feet. I want to ask you to be bold enough to make that decision right now. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross. I accept you into my life right now. I choose to follow you from this point forward. For the rest of my life. And Christians, if you've already made that decision, I encourage you to share this simple message with others because people need to hear about Jesus Christ. You do your part. You point them to Jesus clearly and convincingly and you allow God to do his part. Amen. Amen. Well, we're so glad you joined us today. If you want to stick around for communion, we'll do that in just a moment. For the rest of you, may God bless you as you trust and love and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope to see you on Monday for prayer or Wednesday night for our Wednesday night Bible study. God bless you.